Our whole purpose as a church, as Neighbor's great little Trita said, is not to just emulate the culture the church is in, not to drop out and make a Christian culture, but to engage this culture and to transform it into a culture that's pleasing to God. And in a free society, that's always tough. Of course, one of the major forces is, of course, the marketplace. It's interesting to me, particularly as I uh, get older and as I, my body's falling apart, and why get an infection if you don't get any pain medication? I don't even know, but Advil's working. But as, as you look at life, how people keep score by their jobs. I mean, unbelievably keep score. Why do some people have more money they could spend in 10 lifetimes keep working? The gamesmanship of it. And even, you know, we think whether we're successful or losers or not, depending on our income and the jobs we have. Like the little three little boys that were bragging about their dads, and the one said, my dad is an attorney. He works for one hour and makes $700. The other little boy said, well, my dad is a surgeon. He works for one hour and makes $2,000. The little preacher's boy said, my dad talks for 45 minutes, and it takes 10 people to carry the money out. <laughs> God evaluates things differently than us. You heard, I said before, the little tongue-in-cheek but insightful history of Christianity. It started as a fellowship in Antioch, went to Greece and became a philosophy, went to Rome and became an institution, went to Europe and became a culture, came to America and became a business. Business, business, business. What's good for business is good for America. Americans are one of the most driven people, maybe, in the history of the earth. And if you and I are going to engage this marketplace, the question is, how do we do it in a way that brings salt and light? I uh, had a friend, he had a great t-shirt. It said, all I want is less to do, more time to do it, and more money for not getting it done. That's all I want, too, out of my job, too. But, you know, God evaluates us differently than how even our own offices and businesses do. And if you don't understand that, the drama department can help. Watch this. Have a seat, Mr. Gibbs. Okay. As you can see, this performance review is going to be a little different than what you're probably used to. Well, the more the merrier, right? I like that. Positive attitude. <laughs> so, who are you exactly? Don't worry, Mr. Gibbs. We've all been fully briefed on your file. I wasn't suggesting... Let's just jump in, shall we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ask away. I'm an open book. We think you're doing a fine job. With just a few areas for improvement. So, why don't you go first? Well, I'm proud of my work. I've had a 14% increase in sales over just the last quarter. That's number one over all the other sales associates. Hmm. Interesting that he'd open with that. I was hoping he wouldn't. I told you he would. Is that not enough? Should it be more? Mr. Gibbs, pride is not an attractive trait. I understand that you've repeated that little statistic to your coworkers over a dozen times in the last two weeks. What? No, I didn't. Hey, Tammy, I'm up 14 points from last quarter. Probably some kind of record. Bill, how's it hanging, loser? Be happy for me, Sam. At least my job's secure. I was just kidding. Did they all come in here and complain about me? That's not pride. They're just jealous. There it is. I was hoping he wouldn't. I told you he would. Hey, where's Sam, anyway? 
He's the one who usually does my review. As we told you, Mr. Gibbs, fully briefed. Do you consider yourself better than your fellow salesman? Well, I suppose. That's not being prideful, just a matter of statistics. I closed the fourth biggest deal this company's ever seen. Oh, okay. I wasn't being judgmental. I'm assessing my skill level. I give 110%. We've noticed you've been selfish with your time. No, I'm not. I'm here until 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night, sometimes later. When Kevin asked you to help him move last month, you said you were busy. Uh, you spent all day watching a gleeathon. Did you know that he just broke up with his girlfriend? He was really hoping you'd be there for him. How do you know these things? Fully briefed, Mr. Gibbs. Wait a minute. I get it. Sam put you up to this. Sam, where are you? This isn't funny. I'm just curious. Why do you lie so much? That proves it. This isn't a performance review. If you knew me, you'd know I pride myself on telling the truth. Point of fact, your line was up 32% from last quarter alone. That's a company record. Who are you people? Is there a problem? You're making me out to be some kind of monster when I'm the best employee you have around here. I'm a good person. I go to church every week. I'm a deacon. Mr. Gibbs, that's just it. In our opinion, your performance on Sunday is considerably different than your performance during the week. Okay, maybe I do some of those things. But this is work. That's church. There's a separation of church and state. It's the law. He did it again. I was hoping he wouldn't. I told you he would. Fine. What else? Good. Now we can get started. All right, Mr. Gibbs. Uh, last week, on average, you gossiped five times a day. That's a 20% increase over last year. And don't forget about the slander. Oh, yes, Mr. Gibbs. You need to be really careful with your emails. And I caught him looking at naughty stuff. <gasps> what? Mr. Gibbs. The good news is we will all get an interview. Eternity's a long time with Christ. And that's why Paul says to those that are involved in the economics of the Roman world that you work as unto Christ, not just when they see you for polishing the apple, but behind their back you're serving as to the Lord, knowing that whatever you and I do, Paul makes this crazy bold statement that God will respond, whether anybody sees that or not, because our work is unto the Lord. But you need to have a good theology of money, you and I. And a good theology of money talks about how we make it, how we spend it, and how we share it. How we make it, in other words, the creation of wealth. And God speaks a lot to that. How we spend it, the management of wealth. God cares about the other 90% as well as that 10%. And how we give it, the stewardship of wealth. What's interesting, most of the questions that I get asked about making a decision, the Bible's pretty nonchalant about. Who to marry, and what job should I have? Bible's kind of nonchalant. Oh, it says, oh yeah, do get married, and when you get married, this is how you live. Oh yeah, and don't be a thief. Yeah, definitely work, and when you work, this is how you work. How come? Because they didn't have the choices you and I did. Most marriages were arranged. You normally just did whatever your father would do, and therefore Paul's still in the midst of a very oppressive situation, talks about the freedom that we can have in Christ. Let's take a look at this whole question about the, how we make it, the dignity of work. 
Turn with me over to 2 Thessalonians, page 962 in the third chapter. There is the dignity of work and how we make it. Of course, as Protestants, the Protestant work ethic, which really came from Luther and Calvin and the Reformers, and the idea that is when you go to work, there's a dignity, not in just what you do as far as an end result, but in the process. In fact, there's more of a dignity to the Reformers and Paul for those that work with their hands than those outside, and it's all service unto the Lord. Well, there's some people in Thessaloniki, northern Greece, that are laying around. They heard Jesus is coming back, so they quit working. And so Paul responds to them and says, whoa, we cannot correct this. Verse 6. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pause. He's pulling the apostolic gun there when he does it. This is serious stuff. We command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden on any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Take note of those who do not obey what we say in this letter. Have nothing to do with them so that they might be ashamed. Don't regard them as enemies but warn them as believers or as brothers. So the rabbi Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is saying there is two sides of work. You and I are called to this. There was work before there was ever sin in the garden, remember? Adam and Eve, they're tilling it. It wasn't laborious to them. It was fun. And there's a side that it provides from the sweat of your brow. you got to work to make money. And also that creational side. You have the imago Dei, Latin for the image of God in you. And when you work, whatever the tasks and the gifts that you have at different chapters, then that releases that. There have been a lot of philosophers through the ages about work. Basically, labor and leisure are the two big topics, and Christians have to address it. Labor is that which you have to do for the necessity of work. And the majority of humankind, it's been agrarian and taking care of things. Leisure is the time that you don't work. Probably the greatest influencer on the whole concept of labor and leisure to the Roman world came from the Greeks, from Aristotle. And Aristotle, as he talks about the needs, he believes that some are intended to be slaves and others are intended to be thinkers. Some men are by nature free and others slave, and that for these latter, slavery is both expedient and right. There must be farmers to produce food and artisans and a warlike and a wealthy class and priests and judges to decide what is necessary and expedient. What Aristotle is saying is that, well, we all got to eat and somebody's got to work. It's better to have those that are called to be workers and then warriors. And then you've got people who can think. In fact, he says the Egyptians came up with mathematics, Aristotle did, because they had an elite class that could think about math. So he's not necessarily against people per se, but this huge division of labor. Interesting. How much time should you work? 
How much time should you take off? They did a great study back in the 1980s. I would love to see this again today. I'll bet it's true. Different employers randomly said, we will pay you twice as much this week as last week, just for one week. The Europeans worked half a week because they made the money they would have made. The Americans worked overtime because they got a chance to really go after it. And it's interesting, this philosophy. Of course, the reformers will say the dignity and work Adam Smith in 1776, the year of the American Revolution, published The Wealth of Nations as a Scotsman. And he said that the capital, you have enlightened self-interest. You care about yourself more than you care about me. And if you're enlightened, you know that it's not good for you to let me just drift away. But this invisible hand guiding, and so the whole concept of capitalism, which was really hitting full stride. The Industrial Revolution would come along, unbelievable burden upon the working poor. The working poor in the Industrial Revolution were just getting ground down to nothing, and the wealthy controlled all the capital. And a German who would think sometimes about the priesthood by the name of Karl Marx and Engel wrote in the Communist Manifesto this idea of this concept of the bourgeois, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest than callous cash payment. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value and in a place of the numberless, indefeasible, chartered freedoms has set up that single unconscionable freedom, and this is what he hates, free trade. In one word for exploitation veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. Quote. So Marx looks at these poor people living horrible lives and the wealthy, and he says there will be a classless society. And ironically, he releases whatever his intentions were, one of the most oppressive systems that was ever created, secular communism. He thought he was going to release it so that we would care for each other. And so how do the Christians exist in that? Should we share everything that we have as one? They did that in the first century. I've always wanted to do this. Have everybody come forward and put your wallet here, and then you can come and take anyone you want and go home. By the way, if we do that, go to the 9 o'clock worship service. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> I didn't tell that this morning, but so this idea, well, how do we work together? And if you and I are going to address the marketplace, yes, as Paul says, are you a hard worker? And do you, are you a woman of your word? Are you a man? Are you a gossip? Somebody that nobody can trust? A lot of times when someone says, I want to go into business, I'm a Christian, what do we normally do? Sit on your wallets? Because you know they're going to try to take advantage of us. Are we classy in that sense? But then also engaging the bigger system. How do, how do we address this? Well, as life would go along, another German in, born in 1898, the name of Herbert Marcus, came to the America before Hitler rose to power in 1934. I mean, Hitler was already on the way. And he watched, and if you want to know the debate going on today, and a lot of it comes from Marcus, he has this quote, look at this. They would include the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly from groups and movements which promote aggressive policies, armament, chauvinism, discrimination on the grounds of race and religion, of which oppose the extension of public services, social security, medical care. 
Liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. That's a total debate going on now. Why did he say that? Because of Hitler. He watched how systems to the right end up. So he literally says, I am intolerant of anybody to the right. I mean, you see this still dripping in the discussions in America today. Well, does this have a point? No. Let's just close in prayer. No. <laughs> it has a big point. That you and I are called, for whatever we do, we do unto the Lord, knowing that the Lord will reward us. But there, this whole concept of the Protestant work ethic is that there are different values. I hold in here a dollar. This has instrumental value. I can use it for good, I can use it for bad. I can't use it for a lot, it's a buck. But the people sitting next to you don't have instrumental value, they have intrinsic value. She and he is literally made in the image of God. And their worth is not dependent on this or how people see it, but who they are created. And you and I are called to harness this for the good of that. And it's a complicated system, but it's in our own life. Are you an employer? Do your employees feel that you care about them, or are they just a way to fatten your wallet? Are you an employee? Are you trying to just kind of squeeze everything you can out of your employer rather than saying it's a way to serve unto the Lord? And so Paul addresses this as so important. But he cares not only on how we make it, but on how we spend it, the other 90%. There is a lovely side to money, isn't there? I mean, I love some of the things that money can do. And I've told you this before. Inevitably, I get told this about every third year. Somebody will come up and they're making a lot of money. And they say, well, pastor, though, I'm not like you. I like nice things. <laughs> I go, what, am I a pastor? I like garbage, you know? I like them too. That's why they're called nice things, you know? And God wants us to enjoy that. I mean, I love what the rabbis say. We'll give an account for every blessing we refuse to enjoy. If God wants to bless you with something and we're stubborn little swollen brats going, no. Yeah, you got to enjoy that. I like Jesus. I mean, he was a... His whole ministry was underwritten, Luke tells us, by wealthy women. Lazarus was really rich. That He had his own tomb in his place outside of Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus always crashed. They accused Jesus of being a drunkard and a, a glutton. Jesus was never drunk, and he certainly didn't overeat, but he enjoyed the good things of his father. Like I've told you before, Winston Churchill, who really enjoyed things. He was born very wealthy and Beginning of World War II, one of his commanders from the North Africa Corps came back for a briefing, and they were sitting together, and Churchill said, would you like some caviar? And the general said, we have boys out there dying in the desert. Churchill said a very interesting thing. He said, if you can show me how my not eating this caviar will help one of those young lives, I'll never touch it again. Otherwise, pass me the crackers. <laughs> and what he was saying is, my going without doesn't mean necessarily they go with. And you and I in stewardship and impacting the marketplace have to realize that. You know, the wealthiest person in the world, though, is the person, as they say, who has $100 more than she wants. And the poorest person in the world is the one that has $100 less than they want. It's not just about the creation of wealth, but it's about our desires. And you remember this. Mammon is the biggest temptation outside of pride because they're hooked together. God wants to bless you. There are two heresies that go around out there. One, 
Jesus came into this world to make you financially rich. Heresy is a truth out of balance. There's a truth in there, but it's out of balance. The other heresy is just as bad. Jesus doesn't care about your personal needs. Both of them are wrong. God totally cares, but he knows in the best way how to release that. You, you, an addiction. There are some of us in here, we're so into spending and consuming that we're addicted to it. And the trouble with an addiction is you can't gratify it. You never drink yourself sober. You never do a nose line on coke to get to the place of sobriety. And the addict never enjoys what they do. They just enjoy not hurting. The alcoholic doesn't enjoy being drunk. They just enjoy not hurting from the lack of the booze. The drug addict doesn't enjoy the high they did originally. They just hurt so bad when they're down. And there are some of us that are so addicted to consuming that it hurts when we don't do that. And one thing is worse than that, hoarding. When we make money at God, we refuse to let go. The illusion is this is our security, this is our freedom, this is our source of blessing. And that's why the antidote to that is the tithe. Now, the, it's, I have a lot of people always come up to me and say, you know, Mark, the tithe is from the Old Testament. It's legalistic. And I always tell them, okay, well, then you start with 15%. Let's be generous in this. But you do not want to go to the New Testament. You want to stay in the Old Testament. I'll tell you why. What do they do in the New Testament? The only offering Jesus ever complimented was a widow who gave away everything she had. Zacchaeus, when he discovers the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, he says, I will give 50% of all that I own away. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. In the book of Acts, they liquidate all that they have and they share it together. No, you want to stay back in that Old Testament 10% thing. And it's not that God needs our money. Someone told me he has a really good cash flow. No, what he knows is he wants our hearts, and our hearts are wrapped around it. So how we create wealth, are we doing it honestly and right and being creative? How we spend our wealth and how we share it with others. And what's remarkable is this whole understanding of where we're going. Did you see they now have a hundred year bond on the market? You can buy it and it matures in a hundred years. Why in the world would they do it? Well, it has a little better rate. But it makes me think, all of us are buying all these hundred year bonds and we're not going to be around to cash them. I can tell you what your net worth will be 75 years from now. Whatever you sent ahead, that's exactly what it will be. And God never asks us to give what we don't have. He asks us to honor him and trust him with what we do have. It's not a question of how much of my money am I going to give to God. It's a question of how much of God's money am I going to keep. It's all his. And when you, if I could give you anything... This sense of, yeah, I want you to make a lot of money. I want you to make a lot of money. Why? So I can pay off this debt. That's why I want that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I want you to be blessed in the creative side and your identity. The trouble with idolatry is it steals your identity. You think you belong to the idol. And the trouble with money when it becomes our God, we think that's who our identity is rather than in Christ. But to realize that in the passing of time, we got this power of money. I love the story, I don't forget what city it was, of a very wealthy estate that went on the auction block. And everybody around knew this man had no heirs. His son, his only son, had died in the war. And when it came on block after he died, 
And they all lined up because they know this guy had incredible art from around the world and great statues. Beautiful Persian rugs all around. The state itself was huge. So everybody drove up and they all sat down. They signed in. They had their little paddles. And the auctioneer came up and said, the first thing for auction is this small portrait of the owner's son. And everybody's like, what's a picture of somebody else's son? And one of the maids who had known him and had memories thought, I, I want that. So she bid $10. She said, $10 going once, going twice, three times, sold to the lady. She said, thank you, have a good day, the auction is over. And they said, what? He said, the owner made it very clear in his will. He said, whoever loved my son enough's memory to buy the picture gets the whole estate. Have a good day. <laughs> whoever loves my son enough gets the whole estate. And that's what this table is about. This is not a Presbyterian table. It's a table of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You just receive it. How is it with you right now at work? Do people trust you? You got the integrity true to your values and dignity? How about how are you spending? Some of us need to just chill and enjoy the free things in life. You don't need to spend money. How's the hoarding? Some of you need to go spend some money today. That's what it's for. Take me to lunch. Just do something like that. <laughs> and above all, how are you giving? With gratitude and faith. I thank you for so many of you have done that in these tough, tough times. 